This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of March 20th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. After the immediate fallout of the Great Recession, apartment development in downtown Indianapolis surged. Since 2011, between 500 and 1,400 apartment units have been added each year for a total of more than 9,000 units. Even if we just look at the last decade, the number of downtown apartment units has more than doubled to the current total of about 15,000 units. That increase has corresponded to a surge in the total number of people who live downtown. In 2010, there were about 15,000 downtown residents. In one of the most recent counts, there were 29,000. And the pace of apartment development isn't slowing anytime soon. Indianapolis and other major cities across the nation are trying to encourage it, especially as downtowns face an existential crisis brought about by the pandemic. (coughs) Excuse me. Namely, the loss of office workers in their downtown cores to remote working. One of the hottest trends is to take existing office towers and convert them into apartment buildings. And it's happening with other major commercial structures like downtown malls. The Washington Post had an editorial earlier this month that said the answer for stagnant downtowns is office to apartment conversions. And we're seeing that now in Indianapolis with the conversion of the AT&T building and plans for the gold building. The redevelopment of Circle Center Mall very likely will have apartments. And as the city tries to find new uses for past their prime municipal properties, it's often making residential uses a priority. It sounds like the very character of downtown Indianapolis is in the midst of a transition. For this week's edition of the podcast, we have a three-person panel to explore the reasons behind the recent surge, the city's desire to encourage apartment development, and future prospects for continued development and how that could affect downtown. Joining us are apartment market specialist George Tickajohn, real estate developer Eric Gershman, and deputy mayor of economic development Scarlett Andrews. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, George Tickajohn, who has worked as a multifamily property broker in central Indiana for decades and is executive vice chair, Capital Markets Multifamily of Cushman and Wakefield. George, thank you for making time today. Thank you, Mason. We also have Eric Gershman, a principal of real estate developer Gershman Partners. Eric, thanks for making time. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be here. And across from me in the studio is Scarlett Andrews, deputy mayor of economic development for the city of Indianapolis. Scarlett, thank you for being here. Thank you. I want to start with some historical perspective, going back to the old Rust Belt revival days of the 1990s. Now, my recollection is if you wanted to rent downtown, your choices were largely renovated buildings that were decades old. For example, I lived in Lockerbie Court. I had friends who lived in the Richelieu or in Riley Towers. George, why was that the dominant multifamily type? at that time in Indianapolis? Downtown deteriorated after World War II as the suburban uh, people moved to the suburbs. So most of the properties downtown prior um, originally were built between 1900 and 1929, and then it stopped after that. 
the first new apartments downtown in the modern era were 1987. So between um, the late 60s and late 80s, the only properties downtown were either old buildings or buildings that had been renovated largely by Scott Keller. His company bought 25, 30 buildings over time downtown and did historic tax credit rehabs. Um, and that was really all there was to live in up until Canal Overlook was built in 1987 on the canal. And why was that the, the, the play at the time? Why was that the, the only thing that made well, sense? The rents weren't high enough downtown to support new construction. So that was why there was nothing built before then. So then after the immediate fallout of the Great Recession, I've jumped ahead <laughs> suddenly, we enter an incredible period of growth for apartments downtown, which includes a lot of new construction. So since 2011, between 500 and 1,400 apartment units have been added each year. So that is more than 9,000 units added in the last 12 years. And just to allay everybody's suspicion about demand for these units, the occupancy rate for downtown apartments last year was, George, I think about 95? 94, 93 to 94%. Yeah. So very good? Yes. Recovered from the, uh, the prior year from COVID. So George, explain what was behind that surge over those dozen years in apartment projects downtown. So when the downturn happened in 2008, what it did, it had changed the dynamics of owning versus renting. So up until 2007, 2008, um, most people in the country, including Indianapolis, once you got um, to the point where you could afford to buy a home, you, you bought a home. And homes were very affordable. They were inexpensive to build. There were lots of incentives for people to buy homes. So really, the, the 10 years prior to 2008 was a terrible time for apartments because, as, as they would say, anybody who could fog a mirror could buy a house. In fact, there were some developers who, who both built rental housing and for sale housing who told me that it was harder to qualify for the apartments than it was for a home. That all changed in 2008. The downturn happened, uh, home prices went down, and then a whole generation of young folks realized buying a home wasn't the most and best, the most important thing and best financial thing to do. So renting became a lifestyle choice. And so once the demand for rental happened, uh, rents started moving up because rents had been largely restricted by the comparison of a home mortgage. Once you take that comparison out, people in Indianapolis had, as generally speaking, had been paying less rent than their income would allow. So there was plenty of room for rents to rise as the demand increased because the income levels in Indianapolis were high enough to support higher rents. So that promoted new construction, rent growth, and it just built on. Yeah. Itself. But I, I could live abroad if I wanted to. Why was downtown a place where we saw so much growth? Because it's a fun place to live. And um, we saw a lot of growth everywhere. You, you saw it downtown because the IBJ does stories on downtown apartments. But there's been plenty of apartments built all over the metro area for Indianapolis. Um, downtown just is more visible. And also it appeals to, you know, younger folks 
right out of school who are looking for a fun place to live. They're not thinking about schools. They're not thinking about yards. They're not thinking about, um, you know, having a lot of room. They're just looking for a fun place to live. Where would you say we've seen the lion's share of apartment development in the last dozen years downtown? What are the main sectors that were built out? Well, the hub is Mass Avenue. Mass Avenue is where the fun stuff is. So people, you know, they they live downtown because it's fun. Uh, there's things to do. So as as close to Mass Avenue as possible has been sort of the hub. But then there have been projects built where there are other opportunities. There's stuff uh, on the west side of downtown oriented toward the student market from IUPUI. Um, there's the south side of downtown, which Lily had a big part of incentivizing. They own the land. You know, there's growth further north of downtown. So we're seeing things being built north of 16th Street. And now we're going to see more built uh, on the northwest side of downtown, closer to the hospital, to IU Health. So, Scarlett, from the perspective of the city of Indianapolis, uh, from the mayor's office atop the city county building, I take it residential development in downtown is good. It's desirable. But maybe it's not obvious to everybody exactly why. What are the things that, that, that make it uh, worth going out of your way to do? Yeah, well, a lot of the things that make um, downtown a good place to visit or a good place to work are the same kind of amenities and exciting things that make it a good place to live. I think that's not too hard to, to figure out. Um, we also have done quite a bit of studying of other cities that have been successful in driving commercial activity and retail activity downtown. And what they have in common um, often is residential density. Um, again, it's it's really just a math problem of, of demand. And, and I think as we think about how to drive additional amenities and additional activities and entertainment downtown and to think about how to how to withstand shocks that may happen to our system. I mean, hopefully we don't face another global pandemic, but we never know what kind of changes may happen within real estate downtown. We're interested in in kind of a, a more diverse mix of uses throughout the city, and residential is a really important piece of that. Now, Eric, I want to get your opinion as a developer. So you, uh, or I should say Gershman Partners, and your partner, Dalen Realty, made a splash with the Ardmore Project which was built, I think, on the former surface parking lot of the Regents Tower. Now, remind me, that opened in 2020? Yes. Is that right? About 130 apartment units. So for your company, what was the attraction for doing that project and being downtown? And even in that specific location, because if you look south and if you look west, it still like looks like a central business district. Yeah. So from Gershon Partners' perspective, we're, we're a little bit of a blend of what George and Scarlett are talking about today. We're mixed-use developers. Um, so we own a lot of office, we own a lot of commercial, we have a retail background, and really we partner with um, some multifamily operators and partners in, in the deal to do that. So the Ardmore in particular to us was the center of Mass Ave that George talked about, but also benefited from the CBD, which allowed us to attract 20,000 feet of retail. It's 100% leased. Um, the anchor tenant is uh, Shake Shack next to Sweet Green. Los Arroyos is getting ready to open here in the next couple of weeks. So. To us, that was really the best mixed-use location in the city. Uh, we were building on a parking lot. We had some restrictions on height and how we were going to handle parking, but um, that's a good example of a portfolio we're proud of, of doing a mix of both residential and retail. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing about that project is this whole street level, as far as I can tell, is is eateries, 
Mostly food providers? Uh, for food providers, we also have uh, Fitness Concept Rumble is coming to open up a boxing class. Uh, Spectrum is in there for um, mobile and uh, Wi-Fi and that kind of stuff. Did you guys think that it was necessary to have like those kind of amenities right there on the property uh, because you were still kind of like on the edge of the Mass Ave district? Or is that just your modus operandi? You want to do mixed use wherever you go? Well, it's a little bit of both. I think that the location based on Mass Ave was the best retail location. Um, as we were coming out of COVID, I think both Bottle Works and ourselves benefited of the retail looking at Indianapolis. So when retailers came to Indianapolis, they looked at Bottle Works and they looked at Ardmore, really two different customer sets, but both successful in their their own right. Is Ardmore now totally leased, essentially? I mean, between Yeah, the retail is 100% leased. And I think last time it's 95, 96% leased on the residential. Let me bring Scarlett back into the conversation. So the city of Indianapolis owns a lot of properties downtown uh, that you could say have reached maybe the end of their current use uh, and that it has wanted to see redeveloped into something more appropriate for an evolving downtown. Maybe the, the one with the highest profile is Circle Center Mall. There's what we call the Jail 2 Project and the Arrestee Processing Center. So uh, you kind of named a spectrum of properties and many of those are underutilized or vacant because of the move to the community justice campus of many city county agencies, um, which did did mean a big change. And, and so one thing that we are doing right now, and it's been kind of an easy choice, is evaluating different uses for those properties. And some for many of them, the obvious thought process is a mixed-use development that includes some kind of housing density. Um, and so you named off a few, including the former Jail 2 and Arrestee Processing Center, trying to transition to calling that the Coal Motor Campus or Coal Motor re Redevelopment um, for its uh, history and, and homage to that. And uh, the City Market Campus is another one of those which Gershman is in involved in, as well as some of the other sites you named that all include residential density. So in all, I think we, uh, I think the IBJ reported that the city controls uh, over 17 acres of property in the Market East District primarily, and that includes the city county building, the city market, the, the south half of that block, the uh, two jails, former jails, and the Rusty Processing Center, the old city hall, and the parking lot at 222 North Alabama, just north of the old city hall. And so for at least three of those sites, um, we have in the past year offered them to the development community to seek out proposals. And all three of them have incorporated housing into, into the visions that have come forth. We selected uh, proposals for the City Market Campus redevelopment. That would be Gershman and City Mark. Um, and then we selected 1820 Ventures to redevelop the Rusty Processing Center and Jail 2. And we're still in the process of evaluating a proposal, a series of proposals for uh, 222 North Alabama. But Yes, uh, a lot of ideas about residential right now, and I think um, it is just indicative of of both the occupancy rates that we're seeing in downtown residential, but also just kind of an optimism among developers and lenders in, in terms of residential growth in the area. So let me just back up for a second, because I have a few details about two of those projects. So yeah, so a developer has agreed, uh, I think it's 1820, uh, to a $120 million overhaul of the Jail 2 and Arresti Processing Center. Uh, that includes more than 100 apartments, uh, plus an event center, a retail space, a co-working office area, and a joint venture of Gershman Partners and CityMark is planning a $175 million plus redevelopment of that downtown block that includes the city market and the gold building. The 20-story gold building, which has been an office building, I think, for its entire life, uh, will be converted into 350 apartments. And in addition to that, there'll be a 60-unit apartment tower that'll be built on 
uh, the side as well. And it's the city's job to choose from a series of proposals. Each one of uh, the winning proposals here had uh, multifamily residential. Is this part of a wider strategy from the city to encourage more residential development downtown? Yeah, well, I think I can give the the, the example of the city market, and, and I will invite Eric to jump in. But that block in particular, we knew for the future of the market that we needed to have more of a customer base. Um, and again, when we look at other cities that are successful in driving retail and commercial activity, that residential density is a huge component of it. And so being able to have a you know, morning to night time customer base at the market requires people actually living there and not just working there and coming there a couple of days a week to the office, for example. Um, and so we think all of those those mixes and all of those components are going to make a more vibrant block overall. And so immediately we actually wrote residential into our call for proposals um, is that we wanted a residential base to be part of that uh, vision for the site. And, and this is a long-term partnership to, to build that out. Now, the developers of these projects uh, could receive incentives from the city if they meet certain criteria. Um, and I'm a little bit fuzzy on this, so you really have to help me out here. Uh, what are the criteria and, and how do those incentives work? Yeah, so two things. Um, we do frequently incentivize multifamily projects. And in particular, we're interested in projects that uh, integrate mixed income components. And so we're really interested in driving workforce and affordable housing and, and mixing those with market rate housing. And that can be really challenging. And we we usually have to work with the developers on how what that mix looks like and, and how our incentives fit into the project. But that's something that's been important to Mayor Hogsett um, and to this administration and, and how we use our public dollars is integrating affordable and uh, workforce housing, depending on the project. The other, the other thing that I would mention is, uh, and and again, the city market block is a good example, although there are several other examples downtown, um, is conversions of office to residential, um, which is, is something that we're starting to see more and more of. We already had a project or two before the pandemic um, that were implemented, but we're learning a lot more about what it takes to do that kind of conversion and which buildings lend themselves well to that. Um, and we're interested in how our incentives fit into the those projects, not all of them are going to create the same kind of incremental uh, property tax growth that lends itself well to a tax increment finance uh, structure. Some of them may work better for a tax abatement, but we do want to be encouraging of real estate uses that are going to be supported by our downtown market. Uh, when we say incentives, just very <laughs> in an easy to understand way, what would those mean? At a very basic level, uh, the two tools that we use most frequently for real estate development are tax abatement and tax increment financing. They both depend on capital investment that increases the base property taxes. And what are you discovering about that process as you dive into it? Yeah, Scarlett alluded to in the city's um, coming along in a lot of these discussions, it's very complicated, not just the zoning and the land use, but the not every building is set up to be converted. Uh, we're lucky we have an asset that is. Uh, the floor plates are a good size. The center core of the elevators are well positioned. Uh, removing the glass and, and upgrading the building is something that is doable. But not every office building is going to be a candidate for what you know to for a conversion. Rectangular buildings are good. Square buildings are bad. <laughs> yeah, that's simple. You got to be right? oriented around windows enough in terms of your floor plates. You have so. to enough, have enough exterior space so that uh, there's enough window space for all the units. So the other big office building to apartments renovation that we've written about recently is the $80 million conversion of the AT&T building, which is just north of uh, Monument Circle, about a block north 
uh, Meridian Street. That's a project of Indianapolis-based Keystone Corp. And the city provided incentives for that project as well. And that kind of fit the fit the bill for what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and that project was actually proposed pre-pandemic, but the building as an office space, it kind of lived out its its usefulness. And so um, so Keystone came to us and proposed the conversion to residential. At the time, we weren't really seeing these kinds of projects, but they uh, finished it uh, last year and, and started leasing up. I believe they're doing quite well in talking to them about that. Um, they did... S- they did face a lot of challenges as it, as it came to the conversion and, and getting permits and inspections and working through the kind of complex process that it is. But it, it's a beautiful product um, and I think is kind of indicative of, of what you may see here or in, in other buildings or in other cities, um, more kind of a hospitality style residential development. Yeah. And I think as you alluded to, my understanding is that this kind of project is on the radar of every major metropolitan area due to the sudden shift to remote working during the pandemic, though this project actually started before. So a lot of office users and big towers have either reduced the amount of space they're using or are planning to reduce the amount of space they're using, which has kind of created this existential crisis for downtowns across the country. Not just downtowns, all even suburban office buildings are challenged. So what you, what you hear from the media, <laughs> capital M, is that, uh, Office to apartment conversion is the answer uh, to the, this problem. But how, how does that strike your ears? I mean, is 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 it more complicated than just than what the, we're making it out to be? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more complicated. I might be uh, more bullish than most, but I don't. I don't think office is is dead. I think it's going to be reconfigured, repurposed, and people are going to want to come back and be in offices. They just want it to be a good environment. They're going to be more, you know, protective of their time, the commute. And if we continue to add amenities and residential and food options, then I think that gives more of a reason to come back to, you know, to the office. And where you office actually is kind of up for debate. There's creative office in neighborhoods with coffee in the morning and wine after work. Um, we tend to think that's going to be more successful long term than a, a building in the middle of nowhere, you know, Class B sitting in the middle of a suburb somewhere. So um, I've heard a, a good example is New York City. Downtown New York, which was is an older part of the city, got rebuilt. Uh, a lot of the office buildings were converted to housing after 9-11. Midtown Manhattan, which are mostly or a lot of post-World War II buildings, again, they're bigger square buildings, it's going to be much harder to do. So those built Midtown Manhattan may be a more of a challenge than um, downtown. So the older buildings are better for conversion. At this point in your process, Eric, are you thinking, boy, let's find some more of these things to do? Or are you going to wait until this one is done? <laughs> Get this one done first, maybe? <laughs> I, yeah, I think without a doubt, our priority is is this project. But I mean, it really is a little bit more big picture for us. I mean, we're invested on the east side of downtown. Um, we own Lockerbie Marketplace, the Marat Center on basically the 300 and 400 block of Mass Ave. So this is a real estate location redevelopment in our mind. And we had the opportunity to work with the city as city market can be a great amenity to add to the residential that's going to be there. And I should say, too, in the office to apartment conversions isn't the only kind of conversion that people are looking at. Uh, Circle Center isn't the only downtown mall that has faltered in the last 15 years. So, Scarlett, where are the city and its partners uh, in the mall in the process of redeveloping Circle Center? And what are the chances that there would be residential there? Yeah, so I think we're we're all hopeful that there could be a re- redevelopment project for the mall here in the near future. I think what I can say right now is that 
we have a lot of examples of integrating residential into malls and into um, urban malls throughout the country. And so I think we we are confident that that's going to be a big component of it. And I think that the wholesale district probably is an area where we could see quite a bit of residential growth between that property, the proposed CSX uh, site development. Um, and so so we think there's there's quite a bit of opportunity there. I, do, I don't know that I can speak too much about the upcoming plans other than to say that's going to be a primary component of it. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our discussion with Scarlett Andrews, Eric Gershman, and George Tickajohn about the surge in apartment development downtown and what comes next. Yeah, the, the city's involvement in the mall is unique. So we have a ground lease there, but we do not own the mall itself. Um, and so the way in which we would work with a potential developer um, and the ownership group on a repurposing of the mall it looks different. Um, we we are we are going to have to work with the existing ownership group, um, and as I said, kind of a new developer that they may select or that they may bring to the table. And this is only of interest to me and maybe our real estate reporter, Mickey Shuey. But when we say ground lease, so the city owns the ground. It has leased the ground to the owners of the mall, which is a conglomeration of local companies. Uh, they own the mall mall, but you are all working together to find a, a way to redevelop the mall, repurpose the mall. Yeah, the city will have to be at the table because we own the ground. We also own a couple of the garages and the Carson's uh, former airspace. Um, and so we do have an ownership interest and we will have to be at the table, not to mention, I think there will probably be some long-term interest in supporting a project that that is going to be successful. And residential is no doubt a component of that. Okay, so let's look ahead a little bit. George, before the podcast, said he's not good at, at uh, telling the future, but we're going to do it anyway. So despite all of the new apartment development over the last decade or so, there are still major projects on the brink of opening. There's the industry project at uh, 421 Penn. It's expected to open this year with 213 apartments. The Rise on Meridian project, that's 915 South Meridian, expected to open in about a year with 253 units. The estimates that we have for this year and 2024 are for about 1,700 more apartment units. Is there any reason to think that downtown won't continue to add 500 to 1,500 units per year for the foreseeable future? It may be there may be issues other than demand, cost, uh, cost of money, cost of construction. So that if if costs stay elevated as they are now, that will probably slow down the pipeline for a period because it's just harder to make deals work. And no matter how much TIF money Scarlet has to provide, it, it may not be enough for some projects. So I, I, I'd say it's the economic environment, the, the cost of capital and cost of construction that will cause a slowdown more so than a decline in demand. And costs meaning cost of materials, but also now now the interest rates are, are going back up, uh, the cost of, of being loaned money. 
cost of money, cost of materials, cost of labor. Eric, is that kind of what you're seeing on your side right now? Is it more of a challenge? Yeah, there's no doubt. Everything George mentioned is a is a headwind at the moment, for sure. Uh, there's also uh, the suburban communities have also grown a lot kind of post-COVID. So there's a little bit more competition also that Indianapolis did not have maybe 10 or 15 years ago in that placemaking situation of, you know, a downtown Carmel or a Fishers or, or something like that. Is it possible that we're running out of sites for building downtown or is there just plenty of retail to deal with? People have said over time we're running out of sites, but when there's enough demand, um, you can be very creative with reusing existing land. I would actually say we're we're that's one of our opportunities here in Indianapolis as it compares to potentially other cities is that we oriented towards a lot of surface parking um, in the past. And so there's quite a bit of surface parking lots that that could be repurposed if there if the demand exists. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning about how some of the high growth cities are having big traffic problems like Austin and Nashville. So just more reason for people to come to Indy. We're still, <laughs> our road system is great um, and you can have a car and get around really well still. I was going to say Indianapolis has one of the most impressive collections of surface parking lots, maybe in the Midwest. There's, there's one, uh, the one just north of the old city hall, which used to be Indiana State Museum. That uh, Tell me what's happening there. The city is looking at some kind of redevelopment. Yeah, we issued a request for proposals back in November for that site and um, received quite a bit of interest. We're still evaluating those, uh, but uh, suffice to say that some of them included residential uh, as well. So you didn't put out a statement saying this has got to be residential, but it's an option. Yeah, it was an option. For that site, we, we knew that a few different options would be possible, including hospitality or hotel, including residential, a mix of those two. So we didn't want to restrict it as much, but but we were pleased with the kind of mix of projects that were that came our way. Is rent a potential limiting factor? I know that especially last year, there was about a 10% increase in rent. So the downtown apartments, I think the average rent was maybe $1,400, uh, which is by far the highest rent in any sector of the city. Um, is this a situation where the market is just going to find an equilibrium or do you think that rents will increase on that trajectory? Well, a couple things. Um, part of downtown's rent increase last year was a recovery from the year before. And overall, Indianapolis had a 14% increase. So downtown was less than the overall. So it wasn't anything downtown or, you know, downtown oriented where the rent increase was so high. It's just most cities saw that, and we saw it throughout Indianapolis. That won't continue. Um, I, I still think we'll have, you know, good rent growth for many years to come. But there was a u- unique set of circumstances for the few prior years leading up to the big rent increases last year and the year before. This is the big question: Is it too hyperbolic to say that, given what we know uh, about kind of the economics of downtowns and how they're trending now? that really apartments are the future of downtown Indianapolis? Will they be really significantly, will they be the predominant kind of real estate you'd find downtown? Well, right now, if you think about the real estate landscape, it'd be nearly impossible to build an office building, pretty tough to build retail. Hospitality and and residential are, are all that's left. And I think the idea of Amazon building sort of, uh, small, close to the consumer warehouses maybe have diminished a little bit. So 
what's buildable today is residential. So that's, you know, developers will build what they can. So that's probably what we'll see built, you know, in the near future until the dynamics change. Yeah, I think, I mean, overall, we want to see a mix of uses downtown. I, I mean, that is what's going to make us successful here in the future is is just having a mix of uses, a mix of activity, uh, overall vibrant downtown. But I, I totally agree. I think in the new, near future and really what we're seeing in terms of intake of our economic development projects, it, it really is residential and, and hotel downtown at the moment. Uh, and it's it's a bit hard right now to to borrow money or to to plan on building something else at the moment. But I, I think that that bodes well for the near future in terms of what we're going to see in terms of overall residential density, residential vibrancy and activity downtown. And hopefully that kind of density can then support other uses as well. Let's say that they continue to be more and more residential in character. How does that change what this, the city's strategy for downtown? I mean, how do you need to adjust to that? Yeah. So a lot of what we're thinking about right now is quality of life issues downtown, just as we would in any other neighborhood. So where do you go outside where where you have green space or access to parks and other amenities? Um, what type of experience do you have as a pedestrian? How do you get around downtown if you're not driving? Um, how do you get from one place to the other? Uh, and so we're thinking about those kind of key uh, core issues to neighborhoods. Infrastructure and roads is another one. Um, so we've been finishing out building out Market Street as a key connector. And we're looking at right now redesigning the underpasses to and uh, kind of that that are your entrance uh, to downtown at Capitol, Illinois and Meridian. Uh, and that then, you know, are very connected and close to the cultural trail expansion. So really, those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. And we, we even did a planning process last uh, year, the South Downtown Connectivity Vision Plan, which was really looking at what does it mean to enhance the pedestrian experience, especially in the south half of the mile square. Um, and part of what we we looked towards in terms of thinking about the future of that area were various real estate projects that are on the horizon, including those that are mixed use and incorporate residential. And so thinking about what that experience is going to be, we also have a partnership with Downtown Indy uh, to clean up our downtown and, and to think about cleanliness and public safety. They're working closely with IMPD and, and the Department of Public Works on on both public safety initiatives and public health initiatives and, and litter. I was wondering about the south side of downtown and, and other areas uh, where we might might be the next hot spots for residential development. Any ideas? Well, or Saul would say southwest. <laughs> That's right. Uh, to Which go is, along with the stadium he's building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big mixed use project. Eleven yeah. Park um, got big plans there for mixed use development. Mm-hmm. And that's the old diamond chain site. Right. And it's just across the bridge from Milanco. So, um, you know, there's a lot of new um, development going on or will be going on in that corridor. Yeah. And Lucas Oil Stadium as well. Any other ideas? I think we may see what we kind of understand as, as traditional core downtown expand a bit in terms of growth. Um, George mentioned the Lanco site and the the bridge that's being built across the White River. Uh, there's a potential or opportunity, I think, for for mixed use development on that site in addition to Lanco, but also obviously 11 Park. 16 Tech, I think, has an opportunity for residential expansion there and the IU Health district or and they had the north um, northwest side of town right the Atlanta was the southwest side of town right so yeah. so northwest uh thinking about the iu health investment that they're making and, and and property that frankly they control uh right now that could be converted to private development 
and 16 Tech is, is close by the east side of town, as I talked about earlier, Market East, and even going over into the Near East Side, the Elevator Hill District. So there's quite a few areas that I think have opportunity for expansion that are not in the mile square or are, are just outside of kind of the core. I think another big opportunity for downtown and that we're excited about and, and will almost surely mean more people in general is uh, Purdue University and IU, IU Indianapolis's kind of separate commitments to downtown Indianapolis. And obviously, IUPUI has a quite large footprint on the west side of downtown right now. We expect there to be some combination of those two universities having a footprint in downtown in the future, which, as I said, will almost certainly mean expansion of student housing and potential, uh, potentially other residential. Eric, for you guys, is any more projects on downtown or for downtown on the horizon? Or are you going to stick with what you got right now? Yeah, we have a few. Um, most of them are out there in public and we're going to start construction here shortly. One we haven't mentioned today is in Fountain Square, uh, another great area of downtown that really took off. It was really on fire before COVID, but even after it's got a good neighborhood feel, good, strong residential, good restaurant retail. So yeah, we're uh, redeveloping the old White Castle Distribution Center there into a mixed use, 200 apartments and 13,000 feet of retail on the cultural trail. Interesting enough, Fountain Square was, uh, the project was well-received even by private homeowners that have redone their houses, they're looking for more people. They're looking for housing for um, some of the people that are working in the coffee shops and the restaurants. So it really was even better received than we anticipated from just activation of the street uh, in the mixes of uses. Yeah. And again, and you're taking a pre-existing site that had another use and you're coming in and bringing apartments in. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My thanks again to our trio of panelists, Scarlett Andrews, Eric Gershman, and George Tickajohn. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, the kind of train derailment that forced a mass evacuation in East Palestine, Ohio, is rare. But every city and town with freight tracks running through it must consider the possibility. In Indianapolis... Derailment of a train carrying hazardous chemicals downtown would be a massive emergency, affecting tens of thousands of people and the city's economy. Mickey Shuey of IBJ reports. Also in this week's issue, Peter Blanchard explores findings that marginalized populations in the Indianapolis area have been enjoying a bigger share of economic gains. And Susan Orr reports that Steak and Shake has shaken a prolonged slump and return to profitability as it focuses on self-service dining. You can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say that it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And you may not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to IBJ.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Mm-hmm.